obviously bullpups are much shorter to use in confined spaces, but I don't believe that's really the point. I believe that it's really a fashion statement and that these conversions are done uh, as, in a way, a status symbol. You're listening to War College, a weekly podcast that brings you the stories from behind the front lines. Here are your hosts. Hello, welcome to War College. I am your host, Matthew Galt. If there's been a recent through line or theme on this season of War College, it's that war has changed, and it's not just conflict, but the way we cover conflict. Increasingly, people are using open source intelligence and social media to study and report on the changing nature of war. Caliber Obscura is one of those people. He's an independent arms researcher interested in non-state groups in the Middle East, North Africa, and Asia. He is extremely online, and he knows more about AK variants and homemade mortar rounds than anyone else in the world should follow him on Twitter at Caliber Obscura and visit his website at CaliberObscura.com. Sir, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to be on. All right, so let's get some basics out of the way. Uh, how would you describe what it is that you do? Um, I would describe what I would what I do is pulling in um, disparate sources of information, usually completely open source, to try and put together a both an entertaining uh public Twitter feed and to be able to write about it in depth um, to yeah, to create the desired effect, as it were. And what like, what is that desired effect? Like, what is your – do you have a goal in mind when you're doing this coverage? Um, well, the, the reason I started um, doing this coverage was because really there was no other person doing what I wanted to see on the internet which was um, as high a quality um, open source um, arms coverage as as possible um, and as up-to-date as possible. Um, there is an awful lot of, of really good information out there in t- on, on PDFs all over the place. Um, there's, lot, there's lots of good Twitter feeds, um, but I also wanted to be able to write in depth about the subject, um, about the trends, about how things are moving over time, um, and basically just try and advance the understanding of the subject uh, to, to, uh, for myself as much as anyone else. And is there kind of a – how long have you been doing this again? Uh, explicitly writing, uh, just over a year. Okay. And in that year, are there any kind of trends or what's like the big picture that you're that you've seen develop? If, if we're talking about um, <clears throat> Syria, for example, um, though I've been looking at the subject for a bit longer than that, um, I've only been writing about it for, I would say um, one of the biggest examples you will see, this is not just purely in terms of small arms identification, but in terms of the broader picture is the increased media um, presence of people like Malhamma Tactical, which... Uh, particularly the Western media really loves to talk about. Um, but I, I, to a degree, they're, a, they're an enigma because it's what, what, what is a facade? What is real? Um, <clears throat> what is serious? It's, it's, it, that's an interesting topic. Um, but also there's an increasing 
change again i don't really focus on the tactics but there's an increasing um change in the use of ex more expensive more modern um <clears throat> more previously rare platforms um thermal vision night 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 vision um smaller caliber uh rifles you know you're, you're moving moving from 7.62 to 5.45 to 5.56 um also that there that you become aware of um as each group does it typically you're going to have a more um extremist if you like more dedicated faction starting something and then trends in terms of customization in terms of optics in terms in terms of smuggling then all track down to lower tier ones less extreme less dedicated smaller and so on and is that a trend you're seeing across the board on both sides or is it one side better armed than the other well i mean we're talking sides here you know i know it's a more complicated than that but you know what i'm saying are we talking about Syria? Yeah, yeah sorry, specifically Syria. In in Syria, well, the, the Syrian government, um, if you can call it that, has obviously massively benefited from an influx of modern Russian arms um, ever since circa 2016. I guess maybe even earlier. There's been a massive amounts of of uh, Russian small arms being delivered to to the um, to the Allied militias there. Um, most notably the AK-74, um, a variety of other modern platforms, a lot of thermobarracks, modern RPG warheads, things like that. Um, that has obviously made a difference on the battlefield, but as with so many other things in Syria, I guess these, these items become status symbols and they're not really used for their true battlefield worth. And you will find that they are captured from isolated outposts en masse. Um, and then used against the original owners. As a descendant of that, um, the non-state groups, particularly in places like Idlib province, um, have benefited massively eventually over time from those, from those deliveries because they have filtered through to them in increasing numbers. It seems in 2019 there's, there's more AK-74 than there almost ever has been or I've ever observed. Um, it's all, it's, it's almost similar to when the Islamic State took over Mosul and they've got all, all of those M16s. It, it feels similar to that. It's, it's not on the same scale, but you understand what I'm referencing? Yeah. No, no, I, I, I get it. Um, so these weapons don't, these weapons need ammunition, right? Mm -hmm. And is most of that also coming from these caches and from, uh, sources outside of the country or do they ha or is there a method by which people are you know ammunition's not too hard to manufacture uh yourself maybe at a mass scale it is but uh you know where is it coming from if you're talking about um, across the entire country well there's just been so many deliveries of arms from both sides coming in that um whether if you're not going to be super specific that the, the cartridges used could be from almost anywhere. They could have been come over from Iraq at somehow. They could have been delivered by the Russians. They could have been from any number of the rebels, state backers. They could be from the United States. It could be from anything. So it really depends on how specific you're being. Um, there, there has been studies um, carried out, not by myself, but it's shown some of the range, ranges of munitions used by the Islamic State in Iraq, and it and it you know goes all the way from the 60s. I think 50s even um, manufactured all the way to, you know, only merely years or months prior to being recovered from them. Uh, that's in terms of ammunition manufacture. 
So it's very diverse. Okay. And so non-state actors are mainly getting their weapons how? That's a very hard question to answer because the war, particularly in Syria, has been going on for so long that it's it's very, very hard to track uh, where is what is coming from where. If you're talking about distinct um, systems, if, if you're talking about <clears throat> generic AK variants, well, it's almost typically impossible to work out where that's coming from, just purely from an open source intelligence point of view. Once you get more dedicated, um, for example, there has been uh, multiple Russian deliveries of AK-74 into Syria over over since over since 2016, and those models have directly turned up in absolutely unused conditions for sale in the arms markets of the rebel-held areas. Um, so you can put one and one one and sorry two and two together and um, make four, and it's very obvious there's been a fairly decent measure of corruption um, transfer. I don't know on how big of a scale, really. But then, of course, of course, also, there's just been such massive capture over the years from the regime that obviously used to massively overstock warehouses, um, millions and millions of rounds captured, hundreds and hundreds of small arms, all the way up to 23 millimeter anti-aircraft cannons, ATGM and so on. So it, it, it's not always very easy to distinguish that. But I would say most of the time you're dealing with with um, <clears throat> munitions that are already in country um, that have been supplied either by the various backers of the rebels to the rebels prior to um, the end of 2017, or you're dealing with um, caches that or, or stocks which have been supplied or owned previously by the Syrian government. For a second, let's uh, talk about some of the weirder weapons that I think is what you've got, kind of built um your reputation around finding because um, we, we've seen some pictures of some much older weapons as well as some of the newer ones that have been mm-hmm. kind of out there. And mm-hmm. we've also seen them reinvented by gunsmiths out there in very strange and interesting ways. Could you talk about that maybe for a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so one of the most interesting things you'll see is that um, Syria was a great purchaser of weapons from the Eastern Bloc. Um, and that that included East Germany, which it purchased an awful lot from, um, or you know the Soviet Union, obviously. But it had a fairly disparate, you know, had a fairly um, <clears throat> broad selection of arms supplies, and it also did purchase um, fairly large quantities of what now would be completely um, obsolete weaponry. Um, for example, you'd see the Lugers. The, um, the some of them you were made in Imperial Germany in 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 the First World War. Um, they would have been captured in the Second World War, refurbished by the Soviets, um, given to the East Germans to use for usually police pistols, and then large stocks of those were then transferred in around the 1960s to the Syrians for a bargain basement price. Um, and you have fully functioning, in sometimes barely used products of um, the First World War still appearing for sale. You also find that as a result of the conditions, particularly in in Idlib province, which is under a certain amount of economic blockade, if you like, um, 
there are certain capabilities which were never really supplied in great numbers to rebels, and that in- includes precision rifles. And that is why you have the, the reasonably unique practice of the rebarreling and extensive modifications of Mosin Nagant rifles, which are in many cases over a hundred years old to try and turn them into a serviceable platform for use against um, regime forces. Okay. So what is, what is some of the strangest stuff you've seen in terms of modification? Like I'm, I'm just scrolling your, your, your feed now and I've got uh, the, the bullpup, the bullpup AK. I think is actually very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> well, the bullpup AK is a, is, is, isn't a unique um, <clears throat> phenomenon. In a sense, the Ukrainians actively use bullpup AK variants for their special forces. Actually, um, they and there's been various other countries which have tried the idea, usually with little success because the operating mechanism and the um, and the as they call it the rock and lock design of the um, of the AK. The manual of arms doesn't translate well to a bullpup design. However, um, for a few years now, the mostly Russian speaking fighters, usually foreign fighters, um, in, in Syria have developed a cottage industry of converting a conventional AK rifle of any caliber to a bullpup design. And since then, they've also decided to do that to um, the SVD Dragunov, um, which is a, a, a um, <clears throat> which is also, in a sense, completely unnecessary. And the question is, um, it gets asked a lot when I post these: is the why does this get done? Um, because it doesn't work well. It makes the recall impo- impulse unusual, or so I'm told. Um, <clears throat> it. It makes mag changes much slower. There's all sorts of ergonomic downsides. So why bother? And for me, the conclusion really is it's, is it's a fashion statement. Um, yes, there is obviously bullpups are much shorter to use in confined spaces, but I don't believe that's really the point. I believe that it's really a fashion statement and that these conversions are done uh, as in a way a status symbol. This doesn't entirely compute though, because they don't sell for huge amounts of money. Um, a bullpup AK is fractions of a price of just a Glock. So it's an interesting one. And it, it, frankly, it's, it's hard to work out. And they've never been very forthcoming with telling me precisely why they do that. Uh, okay, two, two questions. Explain to the audience, first of all, what we mean by a bullpup. Um, and second, why is, that a fa- why is that specific thing a fashion symbol? Why did that become status? Yeah, so essentially you can define a bullpup by saying the action of the firearm and the magazine is behind the trigger. Um, one of the most famous examples of that is the Steyr AUG, um, the British L85, um, the Croatian VHS2. And it came much more into the fore, I guess um, you could say, in the in the Cold War. Um, but recently most um, most armed forces are not moving towards that design um one of the most widely produced ones is the uh, is the chinese standard service rifle which is also a bullpup um they, as i said they really came about because the idea is is that you have a long barrel in a much more compact package so that you could get the benefit of 
increased accuracy and all the good things that come with the long barrel but then you're also able to use that weapon for close quarters use now why is it a fashion statement i i cannot answer that question it's it's it it, it seems to me to be that way i it seems to me to be something you don't know why it's a fashion statement yeah i i don't know why it's a fashion statement uh, um it's, it's, it's a weird one i'm sorry <laughs> I, I I have a question that may actually have uh, the answer uh, in there somewhat. Um, a lot of these are young guys, um, and a lot of them have – it seems there's some indicators that some of these guys played a lot of video games in the years leading up to the conflict, particularly some of the foreign fighters. Um, and I wonder how much of this is guys who played games like Counter-Strike and Call of Duty – and thought this stuff was cool and thought and think that makes them look like Navy SEALs. Like how is the operatorization of conflict, maybe something that plays a role in this? Yeah. Well, it's, it's hard to tell, but in a sense um, amongst uh, a lot of fighters there, there is definitely a move towards trying to look like a Navy SEAL. They're trying to look like their SAS. Um, They're trying to have the tactical accoutrements. Many of them, a lot of it, you know, much of it for social media, in a sense. Um, So I I definitely think that could be an influence, but I think it's hard to really define that without getting a broad spectrum survey, (laughs) in a sense. But I think definitely there's a a broader trend that way. Uh, These most of these um, guys, as with a lot of ISIS fighters, um, are reasonably online um, and they maintain active social media presence and they've been there for a while. Um, and I, I guess it's a natural progression of things. What are some of the other trends that you see uh, where people are pursuing small arms that are not necessarily because they are a better weapon, but because mm. it conveys status? The biggest example of that is the AKS-74U. I think there is almost no other platform apart from i guess m4s to a degree which has the level of status <clears throat> which that does symbolize um <clears throat> for both sides in the conflict um you you wouldn't have previously seen them very much um in case your listeners aren't aren't i'm not explaining this but the aks-74u is a shortened version of the ak-74 um, and it's designed to, ha- to take up the space of the submachine gun, but use the, the full size cartridge of the AK-74. The problem is it has such a short barrel that it, it's significantly more impractical than the AK-74 for use at any decent range. Um, so large amount of, of these have been supplied by the Russians into Syria and both the Syrian regime enforcers, generals, figures like that are extremely keen on carrying them. Um, as well as the rank and file, if they can get their hands on them. And you will also find that commanders and rebel forces will carry them. Um, you you see, obviously, that Bin Laden is famous for carrying them. Um, the associated bodyguards, leadership figures of almost every faction, in a sense, across the Middle East is very keen on the AKS-74U. Now, explaining that phenomenon is a hard one, but I... It really does go back to the invasion of Afghanistan when it was shown 
really is a big status symbol. Some associate it with the destruction of a helicopter as helicopter crews carried it. Other Others associate it with it just originally being rare. It then became associated with Osama bin Laden. And then from, from then forth, it's just, it's never lost the, the allure. What do you think is the coolest weapon that you've seen? That's a, that's a, that's an incredibly um, tough one. I, I think because of the diversity um, that that you see, I think I think it depends really on whether you're talking about cool because it's cool or cool because um, it's actually a very effective and important platform. I guess well, I one think, of the most. I think those are. I think the in this conversation, those are two different things, right? Because mm-hmm. there, there is, I've got a follow up question to this, but I want. What do you think is aesthetically the most pleasing weapon? It, it would have to be the AK series, in particular, a late nineteen eighties AK seventy four. If I was going to be very definite, um, I think by far. Um, and that's just basic, unmodified, fairly common now. But I, I think it's the most aesthetic. <laughs> and why, why? Why does the the aesthetic design of that particular weapon like call out to you? I reckon it would just be. I reckon it would just be generally um, just a simple, fairly modern design. There's no bells and whistles. It's it's just simple, sleek, easy. Uh, there's there's nothing hanging off it. How have you seen people modify weapons to make them aesthetically pleasing, but makes them function like garbage? Like, what's the stupidest thing people do to their small arms? People will shorten their AKs till there's a few inches of barrel left, um, where they're horrendously impractical. Um, They'll do the same to M16s. They're very much like M16s, doing that to them. We're very impractical. The the <clears throat> the working of the operator of the weapon will be screwed um there'll be pre- the velocity of the bullet will be dramatically dropped um a lot of this times it comes down to if we can make it dramatically shorter for some reason it's much cooler hard to tell why sometimes and the really serious fighters you see on the front line from the front lines aren't doing that but that seems to quite often be the case. Does it help you tell like who's a poser and who's actually a fighter then by, by what kind of weapon they're carrying? That's hard to tell because as with anything else, um, the information they freely put out is but a picture of a presentation of themselves that they would like to be communicated. So um, I, I think that's a difficult one to tell. I think on the on the more dedicated, on the more funded groups, there is definitely a, n- a notable level of increase of sophistication and of money spent on their platforms. That's definitely noticeable. That's why you have suppressors. That's why you have thermal vision. On the flip side of that, uh, what what do you think are some of the more interesting or clever modifications or reinventions of weapons that you've seen out there? Yeah, well, in my in in my in my opinion, the the modified Mosins are, um, are are perhaps the most interesting because they're essentially taking an utterly archaic platform, um, applying cheap modifications to it, and turning it into what is essentially a quite effective precision platform, which fills a capability gap. What's the capability gap that they're filling? Yeah, I would say um, it fills the gap of there's a there's a real lack of precision rifles. Um, 
there is SVD, there is PSL, which would be usually determined to be a um, designated marksman rifle um, in Western armies. Um, but there is a, a lack of bolt-action precision rifles for a reasonable cost. Do you think that conflict journalists and wonks, that when we're doing our job and we're talking about this stuff, that there's something we lose when we don't understand that there is a coolness factor, there is an aesthetic factor to these weapons that helps people decide what they're going to use? Yeah, definitely. And I also think that there is heavy, heavy symbolism in some platforms, which is which would be caught by the intended audience, but would not necessarily be caught by those who aren't um, au fait. Um, you could see that with um, in Nigeria, IS West Africa province will very proudly show off 5.45 millimeter AK-74s, which they've captured from the Nigerian special forces. That's both a, a statement of we captured these from your special forces um, obviously bolstering morale and secondly a very clear link back to the very prominent positioning of that exact platform back in Syria and Iraq by IS fighters so there was very clear visual links between particularly in stage scenes between what is used and what what is shown and other factors uh, so it does come down to what is cool but I think there's also quite a an important visual language, which, you know, I can't explain to you, but I think it's definitely a thing. Uh, but I mean, that's kind of what you, you're trying to do with your work to a certain extent is explain that visual language to us, right? I try. <laughs> I think you succeed most of the time. Um, mm. Caliber Obscura, thank you so much for coming on to the show to talk to us about all of this. Where can people find your work and how can people support you? Yeah. So, um, <clears throat> It's twitter.com forward slash caliber obscura, spelt with the R-E, the English way, the correct way. Um, and same with the website, caliberobscura.com. Um, there is no donation link. There is no other link apart from that. I am available if you'd like to pay me to do things. Uh, then I have contact details on my, on my website. But apart from that, that's it. All right. Thank you so much for coming on. And I appreciate it. Thank you so much for tuning in, War College listeners. War College is me, Matthew Galt, and Kevin Nodell, who is in the Middle East right now. It was created by myself and Jason Fields. If you like the show, we've got years, years of archives, years of archives with many, many great episodes in there. Uh, please leave us a comment, drop us a like, uh, visit the Facebook. We are on Twitter at war underscore college, and we will be back next week. Stay safe until then.